Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, April 4th, and we're back again for another Media Monday with Puck boss John Kelly. We'll be talking about Jen Psaki leaving the White House for MSNBC, the latest rumors about who will take over for Rachel Maddow, and yet another book written about the Trump presidency. Will it be a bestseller or are people just exhausted by the endless Trump content machine? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be. netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. Uh, We have a little new tradition here called Media Mondays, where I'm joined by our fearless leader, John Kelly, to basically just gossip about stuff in the media, whatever the media means. And John, actually, I I am in Cambridge right now, which is a small town outside of Boston, doing some (laughs) stuff at Harvard University. And I just remembered when I checked into the, the Charles Hotel here, and I've been coming up here like twice a year for... Since like 2013, I did a fellowship here back then. And I haven't been since COVID. This is my first time back up here doing some stuff. I hosted a panel at the IOP here with some really impressive Gen Z elected officials. <laughs> my routine when I get to the Charles that I forgot about is I always turn on local news in Boston. And there's always the most just like hilariously on brand Boston segment like a dude in situate, like knocked over a convenience store to steal like a box of four loco or like 20 minutes of like Tom Brady coverage. And I checked in, turned on WBZ. And like the first thing that comes on Boston local news is a cosmetics line that launched a new Dunkin' Donuts inspired makeup collection, which I immediately oh like took a picture of and like sent to all, all of my friends who have some connection to Boston or whatever. Anyway, my favorite thing going in media is Boston local news. So next time you're up here, I hope you indulge. Near and dear to my heart, Peter, uh, as you know, that the Kelly's ancestral home is, is Boston. I thought you were going to make some sort of joke about like one of Marky Mark's brothers seeing Nomar <laughs> Garcia Parra in a, in a Dunkin' Donuts in Medford. <laughs> but um, you win, actually. I, I, I got nothing, man. But uh, I want to actually start with you real quick with some breaking news as we're taping this, at least. And Dylan Byers, our, our, our media honcho, broke the story a while back that Jen Psaki was talking to MSNBC and CNN. Sarah Fisher at Axios broke the story that Psaki, uh, the White House press secretary, is going to leave the White House. 
and head to MSNBC and host a TBD show on Peacock and also be a contributor. Um, to me, this feels just like sort of, it's a big story, you know, for the Biden administration, but it also feels like a kind of just like another shuffling of deck chairs in DC where you hire like a former politics name to come in and contribute to political panels and, you know, hopefully boost some ratings, I guess. You know, what do you think of this? Is this going to shake things up for MSNBC? Saki is an incredibly competent press secretary. And since Dylan first broke the news that she was going to leave the podium to go right into TV, which is a little unusual. I think in the past, we've seen a sort of sabbatical take place where mm-hmm. people like Robert Gibbs, you know, take a little time before they figure out their next movie or they go into, into some corporate slime wiping job or they end up uh, eventually on, on TV in one way or other, or they do this sort of in-between where there, there's a lucrative consulting world and a, and a, a more sanitized public facing role. Um, I think there's been more scrutiny on Saki's performance on the podium since we first learned that CNN and MSNBC were recruiting her. And a couple of things that come to my mind. One, I think that she was treated as sort of like this great hope who would be a potential, you know, Maddow savior or or liberal savior on on liberal television. And people who watch Saki, I think, realize that she probably has her her work to do to to become uh, a broadcast celebrity. Peter, you make it look very easy, but it is not for many people. And I think that Saki will probably not slip right into a primetime slot. She may work through Dayside and and become a, a featured guest across the MSNBC lineup. But I think it's going to be a journey similar to what Nicole Wallace has gone through, where, where she builds up a portfolio over time. And it'll be interesting to see how her career in television dovetails with the transition that TV is making to streaming and the sort of just general ratings declines that are happening there. But I do wonder, and I, I really do mean this genuinely, she has a ton of credibility and she's worked in multiple administrations now. I wonder how comfortable she's going to be criticizing the Biden administration on MSNBC, because MSNBC is in many ways beholden to the much woker, far left tendencies, the, the sort of like more pro squad element of the, the Democratic Party. Biden's obviously a relatively centrist guy who's got old school values and is socially liberal and, and is from Delaware. So he's, you know, he's, he's more fiscally conservative than a lot of Democrats. And it represents a huge part of the party, but it doesn't always represent the MSNBC viewership base. So I am interested to see how Saki is able to both be true to what she believes and also make for good TV. Yeah, I mean, I think that Jen is really polished. I actually think there's not a better place to get some batting practice to be a host or an interviewer than the briefing room. But I actually disagree with you a little bit on MSNBC's POV on democratic politics. I mean, if you remember during the democratic primaries in 2019 or so, the the Sanders left got really cranky at MSNBC and demanded mm-hmm. they hire That's true. more voices and contributors who represented the more progressive wing of the party because MSNBC has this very sort of like corporate centrist, like neoliberal pro-Biden view. I mean, they hired Simone Sanders, for example. I think I think they just represent the centrist Democrat defend whichever Democrat is in power versus like all Republicans are crazy. I definitely think there's more academic hosts there uh, and more progressive hosts, maybe in primetime, like Chris Hayes and and certainly Joy Reid and, and perhaps Maddow, who'd be willing to criticize Biden on certain policy issues. But I think generally speaking during the day, whenever Jen goes on as a contributor, like what you're going to see is her 
you know, not going after the Biden administration, but sort of offering context as to what they're doing and then basically like criticizing Republicans from there. Well, you actually made a good point, though, that I agree with, which is that, you know, on CNN, you, you sort of see left and right. And that's how they're trying to reposition the network. Now, there are the Democrats and then there are the Republicans. And on MSNBC, you, you do see the many shades of the Democratic Party. You see the sort of like more, you know, very conservative morning side, which is the sort of former Republican Democrats in Scarborough Nation, a more newsy day side, and then an increasingly liberal evening program, which leads me to my question for you, Peter, which is our colleague Matt Bellany broke a little news nugget last night that Alex Wagner, the former MSNBC host, and now I guess returned MSNBC sporadic host or frequent appearance person. She's on the Heilman show, The Circus, a lot. That she's now an internal front runner for the Maddo slot. And Dylan has reported in the past that Nicole Wallace was the initial front runner. You know, they're probably talking to many people and they're probably keeping uh-huh. the cards close to the best about who will replace Maddo. These are impossible shoes to fill. I'm curious how you would assess the requirements needed to replace Rachel Maddow at, at 9 p.m. for MSNBC because she, she is the franchise player and then some. Yeah, I'm trying to do my best Dylan impression here. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> you have to unbutton your shirt, two more buttons to, to make that work. <laughs> um, I do. I need to be handsomer. Um, what Dylan would say if he were here is that there's no way to replace Maddow. If you look at the list of the top cable news programs, primetime and dayside, like the only one that chips into the, the top 20 <laughs> that's not Fox is Maddow, who at times will pull 2 million viewers a night, which is a lot for cable news. Like it's a whole yeah. lot. It's certainly a lot for MSNBC, which is getting much less than that. And that's a following that she built over a long period of time. You know, her brand, and I think the reason people tune in isn't just, you know, reflexive liberal outrage. Like she she does take pretty reasonable academic approaches to certain policy issues that you might not have heard about, you know. And she came from Air America. Remember, she's a radio host. So, so she it kind of has like a podcast vibe. You, she, she digs in deep on things and on certain things and explains them. You know, it's just an impossible spot to fill. Dylan had also reported that Nicole Wallace was perhaps in the mix for this. You know, she's also been building a following during the daytime on MSNBC. Maybe they could port over her audience of, you know, wine moms who forgot that she was a flack for uh, a rocker right. or a George W. Bush into primetime. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, there's no question. It, when, when Dylan first started to hear these whispers a couple of months ago, there was a joke in the industry that MSNBC had to hire AOC and, you know, people were adding Dylan all the time because they thought that Dylan was taking it seriously. <laughs> of course, no, no one taking it seriously. But it, it it's a fantastic joke in that it perfectly encapsulates the the size of the challenge for MSNBC. That, you know, Rachel Maddow is is a not just a person. She's like a personage. She, she's a celebrity mm-hmm. who is larger than life. And she's an entertainment star. And these moments, I get very triggered because I get reminded of what it was like when Braden Carter left Vanity Fair. And they were talking about replacing him with John Stewart, which obviously wasn't going to happen. <laughs> was that but real? It was, was that a real yeah, thing? Yeah, there, inter- there was an internal conversation about finding a way to like see if Stewart would work like one or two days a week. I mean, it, it didn't get to oh, any brutal. like elevated, um, you know, consensus or anything. I think of these things in the context of like Marshall Tito in Yugoslavia. Like, like it, it, there's a person who can like uniquely <laughs> bring together a sort of consortium of different constituents. And I don't think there's anyone like Maddo. And 
you know, in, in a funny way, they almost just like have to move along to the next person quickly because otherwise they'll just they'll be extending this waiting game, which is which is good for no one. But anyway, good luck to to all the contenders for this exalted spot on on cable news. <laughs> exalted. Um, we're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. We're gonna talk to John about yet another buzzy Trump book. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back, everybody. Um, another, you know, we're giving Axios a lot of a lot of praise on this show. Another Axios mini scoop today from the king of the scooplet, Mike Allen. Peter Baker and his wife, Susan Glasser, uh, you know, celebrated DC journalists, are going to write another Trump book. And it is called The Divider. And the book cover came out in this Axios piece, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. I believe the last book um, this pair wrote was a... Uh, healthy tome about James Baker, uh, which is actually pretty good. Um, Do we need another fucking Trump book? Well, (laughs) we're going to get, we're going to get three or four after this too. You know, I think that um, Jay Mart and Alex Burns from the times have a book about the election, you know, which is basically a, a Trump book by another name that we're seeing teased out in places like Axios and, and political playbook. And according to Jay Mart, who I've, talk to a little bit about it you know it's got tons of juicy shit about everyone mm-hmm. but i think mm-hmm. it's trump is the, is the is the platform for it maggie's book is still yep. going to come out towards the end of the year i'm sure i'm forgetting a couple i think that actually uh, one or two slipped under the radar recently i think jerry peters had a, a, a book about the sort of trump-led conservative yeah, yeah, yeah. movement that was basically a trump book by another name tim miller has a never trump Content man Tim Miller has a book coming out soon. Um, I can I can leak uh, that news uh, about it. This this would be more like a personal lens on his experience, like the Bill Bryson walk through the woods of of <laughs> you know how I participated in this terrible thing that happened to the GOP and why I left the party. So that's also coming out soon. There's the real time like Bob Woodward style books which come out. I just don't read them. Um, and I know maybe that makes me a bad political reporter, but the news always leaks. 
And I just feel like I can get the reporting <laughs> in the Washington Post when they publish the excerpts. I will, you know, I will say to, to Peter and, and Susan's credit is like, they have the ability to write well and take like a 30,000 foot lens yeah, on they do. something. It, and that's what this book feels like. It's like not necessarily going to be like a scoopy book that's going to pop and fall back down on the bestsellers. It's meant to be a, to plant a flag and be the authoritative history of Trump's four years in office. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I like Peter and I like Susan. And I think Peter is one of those Times reporters who is sort of always writing for history. I, I, you know, The micro dosing of news in these Trump books can be tiresome and it, and it can be blatantly capitalistic. But here is another thought that I have. I'm curious about what's going to happen to this Peter and Susan book. I, we wish them the best. I don't know how big the market is. I think it, it seems saturated and fatigued. But what's more interesting to me is if you look at Washington media now versus where it was two or three years ago, you know, in two or three years ago, it was the beating heart of like all of international media. Uh, mm -hmm. People in L.A. were watching MSNBC during primetime every night because they couldn't get enough of, of this incredible story. And every D.C. media company, if you, you know, thinking about The Times and The Washington Post and, and Axios and even The Hill, they, these were all thriving concerns. And in the years since, there's been very interesting diversification. Axios, as we talked about the other week, is now a software as a service company and a local news company. And it's, it's diversified into, into a number of different meaningful revenue streams. The Washington Post, as the journal reported a couple of weeks ago, is now like actively trying to figure out how to become a lifestyle company because the, the political coverage is not performing nearly as well as it had in the past. You know, I think that you know, they, they cited some statistic that Basically, 90% of all the top-performing articles in the late Trump era were political articles, and now it's the exact opposite. And they're following the blueprint set out by the New York Times, which very subtly found a way during the Trump era to stand on the, the shoulders of the need for democracy while also creating more word games and cooking recipes. <laughs> yeah. So I think that the culture is probably tired of it, but um, you can't blame Washington reporters for trying to take advantage of, um, of a hot story. This is capitalism after all. This could also relate to MSNBC and CNN we are just talking about. Some of the stuff is cyclical too. Like if Trump runs again, if Trump wins, like there might again be a this like existential dread and about it. Maybe there will be a demand for more Trump books. Um, this book seems like it's been created with the goal of being an authoritative sweeping like history style book that will live on bookshelves for a long time rather than just a scoopy book about like the last six months of Trump's like third year in office or something. Uh, you know, the kind of book that they send to TV bookers and collects dust and you end up seeing it on like in boxes in the West village when you're walking around on Sunday morning, you know, tr people trying to give that shit away. <laughs> One thing you will definitely where place you will definitely see this book is over the shoulder of guests on CNN and MSNBC <laughs> yeah. uh, and in their room reader scores. I've often wondered what like the personal code is about how people assemble the books of their friends in DC uh, it, alongside all the like Lincoln biographies. Um, so I know that Peter and Susan have a lot of clout in that town. And I can imagine that everyone who does a TV hit from their living room is going to make sure that that book is prominently placed as soon as pre-orders are available. That's right. All right, John, we'll see you next Monday. Thanks, Peter. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 